Uh, let's pray, shall we, as we come to look at God's word together. Almighty God, as we have sung, your word is living and your word is sure and your word is what we have had read to us and your word is what we are now to look at and we pray that you, mighty God, through your living and sure word would do good to us. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Um, if there are still a few copies of the Isaiah journals at the back, um, I think. So if you'd like to grab one of those, you're very welcome to. You're very welcome not to as well. Um, but it is a weekend of kings, as we have um, already prayed about um, with the coronation yesterday. Uh, and it was in the 12th century that Henry of Huntingdon wrote about King Canute, who reigned from 1016 to 1035. And Henry of Huntingdon told the story that Canute felt a need to demonstrate to his servants the, the limits of his power. He said, no, you think I can do anything? You think I've got all power to do all things? Well, look at this. And he sat on the beach and he commanded the tide to stop. And then when his feet got wet, he jumped up and said, there you go. Look, I'm not God. Um, I can't do anything. In fact, Henry of Huntington quotes King Canute. Oh, I've got a picture of Canute. There he is. Of Canute saying, let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings. Come a long way since then, haven't we? I'm not sure that dear old King Charles will feel the need to demonstrate such things to his subjects. And yet, and yet for us, I do wonder if there are other things about which we need to be persuaded. How empty and worthless is their power? Um, and, and I'm thinking about the kind of if-onlys of our lives. You know, when we say if-only, you might not say it, but we think if-only. Now, if only I had a different job, if only I had um, a different bank account or a different family or a different body, if only, if only I had more of this thing and less of this thing. And we do it all the time, don't we? If only. And yet I wonder if any of our if onlys are really big enough. I wonder what we could find that is big enough to answer the question what is your only comfort in life and in death? And perhaps we know where the answer to that question goes, but I wonder how we answer it practically, day to day. Now, when you're awake in the middle of the night, what comfort is big enough? Uh, when you drag yourself to a job that is squashing you flat, what, what escape do you dream about? When your, your sorrow or your struggle sticks so close that you're not sure where it ends and you begin. And it just goes on and on and on. Is there a comfort big enough? Are any of our if-onlys big enough? Well, with that, we come to Isaiah chapter 4. Um, concluding uh, this little section in Isaiah we've been in um, for, for a few weeks. Isaiah chapter 2 to 4. A message who, who, that comes to a people who are enjoying the stability at the end of the reign, the long reign of King Uzziah, or in the middle of the 8th century BC. But they are a people we have seen who are sleepwalking into spiritual disaster. Uh, and over chapters 2 to 4, this is, is what we have seen, the way it's structured. But chapter 2 began by, by setting a vision for a glorious future. And then we had these two long sections in chapter 2 and chapter 3 addressing the pride endemic in the nation and how they will fall because of it. And then we come to round it up with again another vision of the future. 
And when we were in Isaiah 3, we saw um, that the Lord is about to remove the supports of the nation. He's going to take away the support of leadership and the support of luxury. He's going to kick these false supports away. These kind of ways that this society is, is trusting in mere humans. And the Lord's going to take it away. One of the reasons he will take it away is he wants to bring the people to a point of desperation. We saw in Isaiah 3, verse 6, the people will be desperate for someone to lead them. Isaiah 4, verse 1, they will be desperate for someone to come and take away their disgrace. That the Lord is going to shatter their illusions and bring them to a true realization of their great need. A guy called George Bananos said, In order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that deceives. In order to lose hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that deceives. And that's the point we get to. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, verse 1, it is hopelessness that dominates. And it's at that point that the hope that does not deceive can shine clearly. It's at that point, at the end of chapter 4, verse 1, we can sing the line from the old hymn that says, When all other helpers fail and comforts flee. When all other helpers fail and comforts flee. That's where we are at the end of verse 1. The hymn goes on, help of the helpless. Oh, abide with me. We have five stunning verses to look at together this morning. And we will crack on with it. And please do follow with me. You see that chapter 2, not chapter 2, verse 2 begins with the words, In that day. In that day. Uh, in the, um, the, the Star Wars films, the original Star Wars films, I haven't seen the others, but the, the, the first three that came out, uh, you know in the films when Darth Vader is coming, don't you? You know because of the music. The theme music plays. Darth, what's it called? The Imperial March. Uh, the, the theme song plays. You know it's Darth Vader is going to come in on the scene and something bad is going to happen. Well, well, as you go through Isaiah 2 to 4, that little phrase, in that day, has that kind of feel to it. We've seen it many times. It came up in chapter 2, verse 11, and 17, and 20, and chapter 3, 18, and chapter 4, 1. That day. And if we pull all the things that it says so far about that day, it's the day when human pride is brought low. It's the day when God will appear in such terror that people will want the ground to swallow them rather than to face his almighty majesty. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So we get to chapter 4, verse 2, and again it says, in that day. And the, the theme music begins to kick in, and we brace ourselves for more judgments. But this is different. This is different here. This now is where our hope, our attention is turned to the hope that does not deceive. You see, having come through Isaiah chapter 3, the illusion shattered, desperate now for someone to lead, desperate now for someone to take away the disgrace. That cry of the heart now at this point in Isaiah is, is there anyone who can get us out of the mess? Is there anyone who can come and cover over our shame? Is there anyone who can bring any hope? And verse 2 gives us the answer. Here is the answer. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The branch is a title used by, by a number of the prophets. The prophet Zechariah uses it. The prophet Jeremiah uses it a couple of times. This is what Jeremiah says as he describes the branch 
He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous saviour. The branch is the coming king who will be called the Lord. Isaiah is going to have so much to say about him as we go on through Isaiah, but here, at this point, we are told the branch is of the Lord. He is from God. And we're told what he is like. This branch is beautiful and glorious. This branch will be wonderful. He will have a a stunning weightiness. Desperation, the people cry. We need a leader. And verse 2 answers, Behold your king, the branch of the Lord. Verse 2 has two parts to it. The second part in parallel describes him again, but in a different way, calls him the fruit of the land. It's tantalizing at this point, but it, it seems that this branch, this coming king from God, is also offspring of the land, born of the earth. Now we can scan through history to find this branch of the Lord from the land. We can scan through history and our our search will end in Bethlehem. Our search will end in a manger where Mary's child is laid, the child about whom the angel said, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus Christ is the branch of the Lord. He is the fruit of the land and he is beautiful and glorious. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ has the ferocity of a lion and the tenderness of a lamb. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who commands a storm to stop and welcomes the little children into his arms. He is always true. He is always fair. He turns his eyes to the outcast. He stretches out his hands to the untouchable. His heart yearns with compassion. And before him the demons flee. Hebrews chapter 1 says he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus Christ shines out the glory of God, all the, the, the manifold, infinite beauty of the Almighty One. Jesus is the shining out. In that day, says Isaiah, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Uh, Isaiah, I think, is bringing us on a well-trod path. For us, our our time in this world is full of cares, isn't it? The going of of life can be hard. Uh, Other times, the going of life is just so quick. Things rush upon us and pile upon us, and and we get distracted and blown about. And for those of us who are believers, it is hard to keep float, to keep afloat. For those of us who are believers, we, we blow hot and cold. Sometimes... It's mostly cold, isn't it? We drift. Now, now maybe it is the case this morning, right now, that you know you are drifting. And perhaps that's been the way for a long time. You've just let the currents of the world set the course for you. It's been a long time since you really prayed. You can't really remember the last time you read your Bible earnestly. And if you're honest, you know, you know your heart is hard. You know that the things of Christ have grown stale. And many of us go through seasons like that, we drift. 
Now, Isaiah writes to a people who are comfortable in life. They are prosperous, they are settled. But he's been working so hard through chapter 3 to show that they're on thin ice, that they're relying on stuff that's not big enough for them, and what they rely on will fail them. But now when we get to chapter 4, verse 2, the message is in, in some ways so simple. When we get to chapter 4, verse 2, the message is, turn your eyes on Jesus. The branch of the Lord, the fruit of the land. Look at him in his beauty and his glory. Consider him. Now that is the well-trod path of those following Jesus. We have to keep looking up from our feet and look to him. Now, now maybe this morning that is all you need to hear. Look to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Of course our verses say more than that. Uh, verse 2 says more than that. Verse 2 says that he will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. The, the words here are important at this point in the verse. When it says pride, that word has been used three times in chapter 2 to speak of the splendor of God's majesty. It's a God quality. You see, verse 2 is saying that this branch king will be that divine splendor for the survivors of Israel. And then the word glory there in verse 2 is repeating what was said in chapter 3.18 where it spoke about the finery, the beauty that was being sought by the women in Jerusalem. That the women in Jerusalem are chasing after this beauty. And verse 2 says, what you are chasing after will be available to you in the branch king. See, that the, the coming of this king, this great King Jesus, with all his beauty and his splendor, all that he is, he is for them. Now, this is the leader who will not let them down. This is the leader who never will deceive them. This is the leader who will be stunningly excellent, but his stunning excellence is what he will be for them. And the rest of our passage, verses 3 to 6, unpacks how this branch king is glorious for his people. What it is that he will do for them. And we have to keep coming back to ourselves, don't we? We're a long way from the times of Isaiah. But when this branch king came in the fullness of time, he commanded that the message about who he is and what he has done would go out to all the world because he wants to bring into his people those from all the nations under heaven. And for us today, we live after that coming of Christ. We live in times that are different to the times of Isaiah. Is that right? Happy? Great. Our times are different to the times of Isaiah. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and always. And we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're to consider him. And as we consider Jesus, we, we are to see that all that he is, he is for us. So back in Isaiah 4, we want to look at how this branch king is glorious for his people. Well, verse 3 says, Those who are left in Zion 
who remain in Jerusalem. It's the same group, those survivors in Israel from verse 2. And then verse 3 says, they will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. Here we have two massive reasons why the branch king will be glorious for his people. Two reasons. The first one, they will be called holy. The second one, they are recorded among the living. Or or as the English Standard Version says it, they are recorded for life. They are destined for life. Two reasons. They're called holy and they're destined for life. They'll be called holy. That's an astonishing thing to say when we remember how these people have already been described. Back in chapter 3, verse 9, it says, these are a people who parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Chapter 3, verse 15 says, they crush the faces of the poor. That's what they're like. How can people like that be called holy? And that's an important question for us, isn't it? For any of us who have any sense of our sin and our failing, the most vital question is, can such people really be called holy? The personal question, can someone like me really be called holy? And, and verse 4 answers that question. And, and it answers it with a, with a, a, a temporal connection. It, it begins with the, verse, with the word when. It's not there in the NIV, it's there in the ESV and the CSB, but it's a when. When will these things happen? How can they be called holy? It is when, verse 4, has happened. That's the most most vital question for us to ask is, how can a person like me be rid of my sin so that I can be called holy? And verse 4 says it's when the Lord does something. You see that? It's when the Lord does something. Now, Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare's play could not scrub the stain from her hand. Remember, she had plotted to kill old Duncan, but then the, the stain stuck and she washed and she washed her hands and it drove her mad because she couldn't get rid of it. And like her, we can scrub and scrub, but never be clean, never make ourselves holy. Verse 4 says, you cannot make yourself holy, but what of it? It's not about what you do. But that's not a work given to you to do. It's not a task given to you to achieve. It's what the Lord does. And what does he do? Verse 4 says he does something about the filth of the women of Zion. Filth is excrement. One one commentator says it's a word that can be used for vomit or the content of the bowels. This is what God's perspective is on all the, the fancy luxury of the women in Jerusalem. Those who find the meaning of their life in the abundance of their possessions. Filth. Uh, Verse 4 gives a parallel description. It speaks of the the bloodstains from Jerusalem. These are people who have ridden roughshod over the most vulnerable. They've used and they've abused and they've they've built their whole lives with themselves at the center. It's all about them and everybody around them is is existing for their sake. The women of Zion are symptomatic of all Zion. This whole place is given over to godless wickedness. And, and God's assessment when he looks on this is that the, what these people see as their very best, uh, the Lord sees as worse than filthy rags. From the perspective of heaven, they are covered with filth, smothered in excrement. And, and those stains stain deep. The, the NIV misses out a little word when it speaks about the blood stains cleansed from Jerusalem. The little word means in their midst. 
the CSB translates it, they are cleansed from the heart. How deep the stains go. They've got to ask, how can this people be called holy? That they're not an exceptional people, they are a typical people. Normal people, like, like we are. And God's perspective on our lives is really no different from his perspective on theirs. And it's a devastating snapshot. Now, when Isaiah 1 says, and we quote it often about our sins being like scarlet, what we have to mean is that before God's gaze, we are plastered in vomit. And the guilt of how we have treated others stains right into our hearts, and there is nothing we can do about it. But there's something the Lord can do. You see, the description of the filth comes in the same breath as the declaration of cleansing. The Lord will wash away the filth. He will cleanse the bloodstains. And you see how he does it? It says, by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Or, or probably better, the spirit. The work of the spirit of God who brings this judgment fire. Now, the washing away of this sin is no easy matter. Uh, every sin must answer to God's judgment. And no sin can be, can be washed until the deserved punishment has been carried out. No sin can be cleansed without the judgment fire. You see, verse 2 has said that the branch king will be glorious for the survivors in Israel, those who are left, those who remain. And we now learn what it is they survive. That these are those who survive the spirit, judgment, and fire that must fall on their sin. If their filth is to be washed away, their sin must be punished. But if that cleansing fire is to get right down to their hearts, how can they survive it? Well, this is one of the ways that the branch king will be glorious for his people. You see, this branch king is the one who, when he came, Matthew 3 says, He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's the one that in the New Testament, Titus says uh, that he is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. See, the branch king is what he is for his people. And so he came and gave himself. And he gave himself into that judgment fire that must fall on the sin of his people. He gave himself to endure what they could not endure. He gave himself to redeem, to pay a price, so that the spirit judgment fire would not consume his people, but that they would survive, and not just survive, but they would come out and be called holy washed from their filth, cleansed right down to their inner being, they would be purified for him. And that is why he is glorious to them. No, they don't bring anything to this. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross, I point. They do nothing, but the Lord washes, and it is his glory to do that for them. Now, all of us have sin in our hearts and we all have two options and we can hold on to it or we can ask Jesus to deal with it and it is the glory of Jesus to suffer for our sin it is the glory of Jesus to wash us clean and call us holy 
And we will rob him of his glory if we try to deal with it by ourselves. If we try to cover our wrong with our good. And we will rob the glory of Jesus when we wallow in our guilt for the sins for which he died to cleanse. And we will rob Jesus of his glory when all we see is our filth and we forget he died to make us holy. The branch king is glorious for his people. And there are two reasons why in our passage. The first one is because they will be called holy. The second is because they are destined for life. Um, I, I sometimes look on Twitter. This is confession time. Um, I, I never tweet because I have nothing to say, but I do look. Um, but I think I'm going to have to stop because you know, Twitter has a kind of algorithm which presents things that it thinks you're interested in. And I think the algorithm is, is evil. Um, because I keep on getting sent tweets about cats and things that cats do. And however quickly I, I block them and try to shut them down, I seem to get more. So I think I'm going to have to give up on it. However, um, this week on Twitter, I saw... This, that's completely unrelated. Um, uh, um, a guy called Marcus Honeyset, some of you will know, he tweeted about his Swiss Army knife. He's had this Swiss Army knife for about 40 years, and he broke it. And, and he took it to the Victorinox, is that how you pronounce it, the shop in London, um, and, and he said they repaired it wonderfully for free. That's great, isn't it? That, that got my attention, because I've got a pen knife pretty much exactly the same as his. It's not quite as old, but not far off, and it's broken, so uh, I might take it there. And, but what he did, he took this broken thing, and it got restored and renewed for free. That's what God does with us, isn't it? And we come broken, and he renews us for free. Uh, but this life that we hear about in Isaiah 4 is much more than the restoration of a Swiss army knife. Uh, the, the life that is spoken about, being destined for life, is not more of the same of this. Uh, that would be a problem. Uh, what is this life the survivors are destined for? Well, we have to get through verse 4 to get to verse 5. That's important. Uh, when, when the survivors are called holy, when they are being cleansed from their sin, the point is to get them somewhere. And the somewhere is described in verse 5. Now, verse 5 says, the Lord will create. That, that create word is only ever used about what the Lord does, a unique God activity in creation. And, uh, and our, what God is going to do, he's going to create a place. And our attention gets brought to certain features of this place. It, it describes about this, this cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. It's to remind the readers of what happened hundreds of years earlier at the Exodus when, when the people of Israel were rescued from slavery in Egypt and God brought them out to be with him and he represented his presence among them with a cloud, of, 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 with a cloud by day and a pillar by night. And, and then for those people, when he instructed them to build a tent of meeting, a place where they could go to meet with God, the glory of God fell on the tent and it was filled with smoke. And, and then afterwards, when, when Solomon turned the tent into a temple, this residence of God among his people, the glory of God fell and it was filled with smoke. All of that comes to mind as we read verse 5. Because uh, what God will create is that the whole place of Mount Zion will be the place of God's presence. God is creating a place where he can be with his people. That is life. Because it's what Jesus said in John 17. Uh, when he prays to his father, he says, this is eternal life. 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is life to the full, never-ending fellowship with God. Not, not separated uh, from God by anything anymore. No sin, no mortality, nothing in the way, but living with the infinite beauty of the Most High. Now, in, in our passage, verse 4 is not the destination. That judgment washing is not the final act. The end goal is for the Lord to have a people for himself who are his treasured possession, who are with him always. Now, 1 Peter 3.18, I think, plots that move from verse 4 to verse 5, where it says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's verse 4. And then it says, the purpose was to bring you to God. That's verse 5. And and this is why the branch king is glorious to the survivors. Because he is all that he is for his people. So that through his suffering, he might bring them to life. Now, to, to impress the, the wonder of that upon their hearts and upon ours, uh, he describes more of what this life is like. And as he describes what this life is like, he tells them that life with God is safe and happy. Safe and happy. At the end of verse 5, uses an, an astonishing idea to convey this. The end of verse 5 says, over everything, the glory will be a canopy. Canopy, that that word canopy means a marriage chamber. This new world that God will create so he can be with his people is described as a honeymoon suite. That's staggering, isn't it? You see, staggering as well, because at the end of chapter 3, the daughters of Zion, their sin reaches, catches up with them, it it bowls them over, and and their very lowest point is that they beg that anyone will marry them. That they're so covered in shame, they're, they're clutching for anything to take it away. This frantic pursuit of beauty ends in deep tragedy, but does not need to end there. What they deeply desire, they search in all the wrong places for it, but what they crave, what they need, is what only God can provide. Now, God has invented marriage to give a sense of what he wants with his people. A marriage is every marriage falls short. But even in their failings, an aching hole is opened up that points towards something more. Our verses are telling us that God will create this place where life with him will be utterly committed. There will be a constant felt experience of being with him who is loved. All love in this world is tainted and and poisoned and polluted and weakened and the shine is bashed off it. But in that world, love will be pure. Infinite love will be known and we will be in it. God doesn't want anything to be held back in his relationship with his people. So he uses this idea of marriage, the honeymoon suite, a way of helping to give just a tiny glimpse of what is now more than what we can understand. Because in that place, we will belong. In that place, all disgrace will be removed. And in that place, we will be home. It's a happy place. And it's a safe place. Verse 6 describes the safeness in a number of ways. It says, this place, it will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day. 
and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. The heat and the rain, uh, giving two extremes to show the, the range of protection. Uh, the storm and the rain are giving a kind of an unusual harm and a usual harm to, to just spell out the breadth of this protection. But verse 6 is, is piling up all these different ideas of protection to show how complete it will be in that place. And, and you just think how the ideas in verse 6 w- would work upon the hearts of these people. These people who are, who are being brought into the midst of great troubles. They live in them just like we do. And, and they're told now how the branch king, who we know as Jesus Christ, will come to secure life. He will come to secure this place. That is why he is glorious to them. That this place that God will create where no harms can reach. Think on that. Where no harms can reach. Are the fears that corrode our confidence in this life. They won't be there. The panics that cripple our ability to function. They will not be able to get to that place. Are the dangers that loom around, the dangers that already entangle and afflict us and we are already in the midst of them, they will not be able to get at us in that place. And the accuser's voice in our ear. Now that voice that wears us down, that tells us of our faults, tells us that we are worthless. That voice will not be heard in that place. And all of our disgrace and the shame that we carry, it will be left outside of that place. It has no permission to enter in that place. And, and the hurts from our past that still haunt us today, they will not be able to get at us in that place. And the threats around, the threats of of disease and war and violence and famine, whatever disaster we can imagine. Even the unseen threat of demonic powers constantly plotting our ruin. None of it, none of it will be able to get to that place. None of it will be able to get at us in that place. Now the life that God will create is endlessly happy and it is always safe. You see, the branch king is what he is for his people. And so he gave himself for them, to bring them to God, to earn for them eternal life, life that is in God's place, life that is with God, in his love and under his protection. That's the destiny of his people. They are destined for life. They're not destined for the grave. They are destined for eternity. And that is why he is glorious to them. But the question that every one of us needs to answer this morning is, is he glorious to you? Now I wonder, even as you hear these things, whether you you even want a part in it, to be called holy, to be destined for this life, does that hold any interest for you? Now who is this for? Now it's clear in our passage it is for the survivors Now we have to ask, are we the survivors? Well, these survivors in our passage can do nothing. In these verses, the action, every action is on the part of God. The the future that is being described in these verses is a gracious 
future. You can't get in on it by what you do. But you can get in on it by receiving it from him. In John 3 it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The survivors are those who trust themselves to the Lord Jesus. And those who trust themselves to Jesus, he is glorious for them. For those who trust themselves to Jesus, he should be glorious for us, shouldn't he? He should. Now, as we come to the end of this little section in Isaiah 2 to 4, a section which, is, which aims to help the people put their trust in the Lord, putting before them the glorious future in contrast to the fall of the proud. With all of it in view, we now come again to that central exhortation in chapter 2, verse 5, that says, Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. And Isaiah 4, 2 turns our eyes to Jesus, to the branch king, turns our eyes to him, and we need and in this coming week, we will need that. And when we are on our faces in the dirt because we've stumbled or been tripped, and we will need to turn our eyes to Jesus. And when we turn our eyes to Jesus, we find that he is always enough for us. See, it's because of him. It's only because of him that we are holy. It's because of him that our many sins are not counted but cleansed. It's because of him that our status is not filthy, but we are purified by the blood of Christ. And it's because of him that we are destined for life, the endless, happy and safe life of God. That's what we're walking towards. The, the week that we, that we have ahead of us may be a week where we are walking in a valley. It may be a week where we are battered by storms on the way. But whatever this week holds for us, for those who trust Christ, the road we go on in this week is a road toward life. Jesus has ensured it. So it's when we turn our eyes to Jesus that we find the answer to the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And we can say that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. So come. Come. Let us turn our eyes to Jesus. Let's see all that he is, and that all that he is, he is for us. Come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's just take a moment of quiet. Now in your heart, speak to the Lord. Tell him what's going on. And then we will sing together.